I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 17th, 2016. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the NFL playoffs and the excellence of Cowboys Packers and Antonio Brown live streaming a video of his coach calling the Patriots assholes, which was also excellent. We'll also talk with agent Don Yee about his new venture, Pack Pro Football, and whether it can become a legitimate minor league for the NFL and an alternative to the unpaid labor of college football. And ESPN's Ethan Sherwood-Strauss will join us to assess the Golden State Warriors' blowout win over the Cleveland Cavaliers and where the Warriors are at the halfway point of the NBA season. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Mike Pesca is out this week, but with us from California is the pride of Menlo College, the Denver Broncos, and briefly, the Las Vegas Locos of the United Football League the author of the books Slow Getting Up and Fantasy Man, it's Nate Jackson. What's up, Nate? Hurrah! Hey, how you doing? Thank you. Good. Uh, longer intro than Stefan. You deserve it. I could have mentioned a featured player in A Few Seconds of Panic. He's really a minor player <laughs> in A Few Seconds of Panic. I think what? I was integral to that book coming coming about. I think you were. I think um, I was integral to your books coming about. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're in the acknowledgments, dude. <laughs> in our bonus segment, we're going to adjudicate this for Slate Plus members. It's been 10 years, which makes me feel old. I can only imagine how old that makes you feel, Stephen. Nate. <laughs> Nate. <laughs> yeah, Stephen. He has no more black pubes. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the time long ago when Nate and Stefan were in Broncos training camp together. That was the summer of 2006. We are marking, this is the 10th anniversary podcast for a few seconds of panic. We'll talk about that uh, on Slate Plus. And Josh's idea, just for the record. There has <laughs> never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. 
we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangupplus. The NFL's conference championship matchups are set with the Falcons hosting the Packers and the Patriots playing at home against the Steelers. Both of those games will be on Sunday. The Patriots' crazy run of dom- of dominance is certainly worth noting, and the Falcons are having one of the best offensive seasons ever. But I want to start with the Packers went over the Cowboys and the Steelers uh, went over the Chiefs. The Green Bay-Dallas game I thought was the best advertisement for pro football I've seen in years. Two really fun and talented teams, both playing incredibly well. Four ties or lead changes in the fourth quarter. Three last-minute scoring drives, a couple field goals for Stefan. Three field goals three. for Stefan. Uh, I actually thought of you, though, Nate, uh, when I was reading about the play that set up the winning field goal. According to Randall Cobb, the Packers receiver, there was no actual play call. Aaron Rodgers just told all the receivers where to go. And Jared Cook ends up making the spectacular catch on the sideline, tapping his toes. There's great camera work, so you can see it in slow motion. It was just a fantastic play, beautiful play, and apparently free of the kind of suffocating orchestration that you hate nate so did this play speak to you like it spoke to me yeah i thought it was beautiful and you see him rolling left and everybody rolling and kind of figuring out where to go as he moves there's the thing that you do do at practice in football it's called a scramble drill and it is kind of to simulate when things go awry when there is no plan when the plan breaks down and i don't think football teams do enough of that they really don't and it shows you in moments like that when it can come together the chemistry that receivers have with their quarterbacks is something that's only learned through moments like that of improvisation of looking at each other in the eyes of the quarterback you know giving you that nod or saying whatever he said in the huddle like that and i think it kind of speaks to the reason why uh, Tom Brady is so good. Ben Roethlisberger is so good. Uh, Aaron Rodgers and those teams end up being so good is because they are allowed a level of uh, improvisation and freedom that these other teams and young quarterbacks do not have. Uh, we all have the ability to do it. Football players that make it to the NFL, they are good enough to do that. Whether or not teams facilitate them and allow them to do that, that's up to the coaches. But the bottom line is it was fun. And I want to contrast that. I don't want to get away from the Cowboys Packers just yet because we haven't talked about the kickers. Um, But I want to contrast that with the end of the Pittsburgh Steelers Kansas City Chiefs game in which once again, a team coached by... That guy who was in Philadelphia and is now in Kansas City, <laughs> Andy, Andy Reid, took like 47 minutes to execute a final drive with his team down by eight. I was watching that thinking, this is taking way too long. And the reason, Nate, correct me if I'm wrong, that these drives and situations often take too long is because the amount of communication between the coaches in the box and the coaches on the field and the quarterback in the huddle is interminable. There's a a lack of preparation that would allow and freedom that would give a quarterback the opportunity to say, all right, we need to get the hell down the field in two minutes, not five. Give the quarterback the opportunity to call the plays and get moving. First, in honor of Andy Reid, we should just pause 30 seconds before any of us answer uh, Stefan's uh, question. But I thought the thing you were going to say is the the hit on the defenseless receiver that gave the Chiefs the first down. We'll we'll get to that. the guy's name is Chris Conley. He missed one play. The thing that disturbed you is that they were taking too long. Not, no, that, the, no, not that the guy got laid issues. out. These are issues. No, All we right. were talking about improvisation and the freedom to run and giving right. the athletes, giving the athletes some, some authority on the field. 
Yeah, it becomes it becomes too much for a lot of for a lot of quarterbacks to be able to play their best. You know, back in the days, Terry Bradshaw, those quarterbacks, they were calling their plays out there. They right. were moving the ball and 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 looking at what's in front of them. You know, these guys are the best football players on planet Earth. God forbid they might know how to do it better than the big fat guy on the sideline with a headset. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being big or fat, but I'm saying <laughs> or that headsets. Or headsets, but the guys who are doing it are better than you. They're better than everyone. The reason why they got to the NFL is because they have instincts that are refined and special. And you saw that playing out on the field. And you see Aaron Rodgers, um, you know, everybody's assuming or agreeing that he's the best quarterback in the NFL right now. And I do think he is. But it's because he has that freedom. It's because he has that relationship with Mike McCarthy who says, yeah, man. I know that you're the guy. You just, oh, so right. go do it. Right. And Tom Close, close watchers of the school. Kansas City Chiefs might say Alex Smith is no Aaron Rodgers, but I have a feeling that Alex Smith could have run a 60 or 70 yard drive in less than four and a half minutes. So had he been given true. more freedom. But so he did run a drive that set him set him up to score the two-point conversion to tie it and send it to overtime. And so there are a thousand different ways to skin a pig, as they say. And you can uh, do Nobody it a lot of that. different ways. And uh, I think that they were in position to at least send that game into overtime. And it was a holding call that did it. So back to Jared Cook's catch on the sidelines that set up the winning field goal. How do you learn how to tap your toes like that? Is it just repetition? Are there specific drills that you do? And like, how cool is making a catch like that on the kind of continuum of all kinds of uh, pro football catches one can make? Yeah, that's one of those catches that you start practicing when you're six or seven years old out on the street, you know, throwing those over the shoulder catches and dragging your toes on the sideline. For me, I was Jerry Rice in the street doing Mm -hmm. that. And then you make it and you start playing. And that's a drill that, you know, a lot of receiver coaches will do um, in high school, in college, and then the pros. And it becomes kind of a, a an instinctive thing when you're on that sideline. You don't want to look down at the sideline. That's one thing you don't want to do. Don't look there. You got to feel it. You got to look at the ball, make sure you're going to catch it. But you learn to drag those feet. And that's something that you can train your body to do. And it is. It's a very empowering feeling when you make that sideline catch, when you toe tap it and you don't even try. You don't even think about it. And that's the kind of level that these athletes are operating on. They're not thinking about tapping their toes. They're just doing it because of where they are on the field. They feel the moment and it's all kind of just this out of body experience that they're feeling. The other thing that I find interesting about um, the Packers in particular is, you know, Jordy Nelson has this rib injury. He doesn't play. A lot of these dudes are you know, I think one of the guys named Geronimo, you know, these are not the kind of like frontline first team receivers that have been, you know, making these catches and, you know, getting, you know, touchdowns for Aaron Rodgers all year. So presumably they've been practicing together, but he does seem to have this connection with dudes who just like come off the bench. And is that just because Aaron Rodgers is great? Um, is that something to do with, uh, you know, the offense they run. What's your sense of that? Well, that's practice as well. I mean, there are no bench players in practice. Everybody is kind of getting the same amount of reps running in and out and, uh, and cooperating with each other. And that shows that during practice, Aaron Rodgers is throwing the ball all around the field to every one of his players. And he's making them confident in feeling that 
at any time they can get the ball. You know, a lot of times with these kind of really structured, rigid offenses, these quarterbacks will look to one side and one side only. And especially at practice when you have kind of a paranoid coach who wants things to look exactly the same, they have a script. And on that script, the quarterback knows where he's going to throw the ball prior to stepping on the field for that play. But it looks to me like in Green Bay, they don't really manage practice with that same kind of control. They allow Aaron Rodgers to throw the ball where he wants in practice, which means he throws it all over the place. He throws it to Geronimo. He throws it to whoever. And so when they get out on the field, he knows that they'll be confident and then he can throw them the ball and they're going to catch it. Now, the narrative going into the NFC Championship game is going to be about champion Aaron Rodgers versus Matt Ryan, non-champion. When you see stories like this, and there was one that Josh circulated uh, over the weekend on ESPN with the appended line, some bullshit about Matt Ryan needing to be a, quote, champion, unquote. When you see stories like that, what does it make you think about the the narratives that that evolve around athletes and teams? Well, one, the, too much is put on the quarterback. Uh, the, the quarterback play is, is fun to watch, and it is the focal point. It's the easiest thing to film. Uh, however, the people who tell you that quarterback is the most difficult job in sports are typically former quarterbacks. Uh, you know, these guys are awesome, but conceivably, if you grew up thro- throwing objects out in your front yard, you can step <laughs> out onto the field and make a good throw. A lot of human beings can make good throws. Can those same human beings block? Can those same human beings run, sprint down the field and make the catch? No, they can't. So my argument is... This is a very interesting take. Please continue. (laughs) My argument is that quarterback is actually the easiest job on the field because all you is compute all this information into your brain, which you were born with. You didn't build your brain. You have the capacity to learn all these kind of coverages and schemes and system and terms. But to actually do the stuff that gives that quarterback time to throw it, that's the hard stuff. So let's back off the quarterbacks a little bit, but also the statistical likelihood of making it to the Super Bowl is incredibly slim. You know, the the the, the talent pool of quarterbacks out there in the world leads to 32 starters on the highest stage in the world for, for this game, and only two of them are going to make it to the Super Bowl every year. There's so many contingencies. There's so many things going against you. Matt Ryan is is an amazing athlete. He's put his life into this. To kind of say that it's all about this game for him to earn some kind of legitimacy, I think is foolish. Nate Math Jackson, as we call him. Hey, you didn't build that, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, listen in to the Steelers locker room after that game, despite uh, the Chiefs receiver getting laid out and concussed, uh, giving the Chiefs a much needed 15 yards at the end of the game. The Steelers uh, won the game 18-16. They're going to play the Patriots in the AFC title game. And Antonio Brown, for whatever reason, uh, live-streamed Mike Tomlin's Post game, a uh, rallying cry streamed it. Uh, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I would have. Uh, let's listen to a piece of that. Hey, 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 fucking go. Let's, let's, let's start up preparation. We need to find a good asshole today and a half. They played yesterday. Our game got bullshit tonight. We're going to touch down at 4 o'clock in the fucking morning. So be it. We'll be ready for the ass. So, but you ain't got to tell them the c
there and we'll stick with this shit. The tech signing, right? Keep it low profile. Let's get ready to ball like this up again here in a few days and be right back at it. Let's go. Hey, man, that's our story. I love how the players were mugging for the camera while Tomlin was speaking. There wasn't a lot of reverence there directed at Tomlin's words. Um, and I, being, they should have been quiet when he was saying we're ready for that ass. That's yeah. like a moment that you need to yes. be solemn. We spotted these assholes a day and a half. They did spot these assholes a day and a half. <laughs> that's Nate, right. They did. Does that give you, uh, you know, joyous flashbacks? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to Mike Shanahan's post-game speeches? I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe not Mike Shanahan's, but other people in the locker room, you know, who, who kind of adopted that same tone. Look, football is about, we are told on football teams that we are going to war. We're going to battle. People tell us, no, it's just a game. And then they tell you, you're going to battle. Kill him. Destroy Literally. him. Attack him. Literally yeah, using those words. Exactly. So the rhetoric is very combative. We feel as if we are going to battle. And when you step out on that field, you are being attacked by 11 trained killers who are coming to hurt you as if their life depends on it. So in a lot of ways, it does feel like battle. So you can't fault these men for talking like they're riled up, like they're excited. Every single opponent we had to face were a bunch of assholes. Absolutely. We wanted to destroy them. We felt no reverence for them. We wanted to embarrass them and hurt them. And uh, so that's just how it is inside there. I think it's kind of crazy that he live streamed it. <laughs> I mean, I think he'll probably be punished for that or at least called into Mike Tomlin's office and say, hey, buddy, what are you doing there? You know, this is supposed to be look a- bad. Right. Or just like, don't don't put those moments out into the world. Those are for us. But um, well, there is a moment just- at the end. I think we heard it. Where somebody says, you know, don't put don't put anything on social media. This is just about us. <laughs> right. He said, keep a low profile, which is like something that said <clears throat> that coaches talk to their teams about how to deal with the media, what to talk about, you know, what to what to put out there, because the Bell Belichickian uh, <laughs> Patriots have always been very into you know, using media fodder to get riled up. Right, but up. Isn't, so, isn't what was lovely about that was a the candor. And the glimpse of the that these are normal human beings who are excited about something and enjoying themselves and a coach who's not afraid to speak, not using the bullshit cliches that we are accustomed to thinking. This is NFL locker room talk. Using. This, this is, is real this locker room is Actual talk. locker room banter. And B, the fact that and you can interpret this however you want. Yeah, everybody's an asshole. But yeah, the Patriots are a special kind of <laughs> asshole. And I think that's what Mike Tomlin was saying there. They are. And I think everyone knows it. Everyone agrees with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Everyone wants the Patriots to lose. I think it's enjoyable to watch them lose. Uh, It's going to be a really good game. And uh, I don't think they need any more motivation to be pissed off. But it just kind of adds a little drama, which we all like leading up to these games. My last thought is I think that there's a connection between the kind of regimentation we talked about on the playing field and watching this. It just struck me how sanitized the view we get and how um, that is a very Goodellian thing and how I think it doesn't do the league any favors, favors, actually. So after the game, James Harrison, who is a train killer, uh, is on the field doing his like post-game spiel about, yeah, we we, played really well, just did (laughs) did my assignments. And then 
when you see this thing that you're not supposed to see, it's actually like really interesting and entertaining. It makes me like the players and the coach more. And that's just the point. It's like, why is the NFL not want us to see this? Right. And this was the point of the three books that you and I have written about football, Nate. Yeah. And, and, but a lot of times, especially these days, if a player or a coach says something that, Maybe one member of the media doesn't like it turns into a really, really big thing and they would rather avoid it. So they end up talking in these really boring cliches. They get they get meetings and, and are taught how to give a proper soundbite. It's very they have a hard time thinking for themselves and being for them being themselves on camera and when asked questions, because even the questions themselves, you know, take us through that last drive. How amazing was it to feel what you did when you scored that play? How amazing was it? Uh amazing. You know, you just answered it for me with your question. (laughs) And so a lot of times these questions don't really allow these guys a moment to think for themselves or have that candid moment because it's just these canned questions and canned answers. And it's just kind of like, why are we even here? What are are we? And then eventually at some point it's going to boil over as it did with Michael Bennett of the Seahawks when a reporter quite innocuously asked about the fact that the defensive line wasn't uh, getting as much pressure um, in their game against uh atlanta Atlanta. and he kind of flipped out no he didn't kind of flip out he flipped out and that's just tension boiling over and that's genuine too that's authentic too though the way it boiled over wasn't palatable because he had you know he sort of called out a reporter saying what adversity have you gone through and the reporter had hodgkin's lymphoma at one point yeah, as if he as if he should know that, <laughs> as if we know anything about our reporters. There is this thin line between players and reporters, and you're supposed to know everything about us. You get to dig through our trash. You get right. to find our DUI reports. You get to talk to our RAs on campus. You get to talk to our parents, uncover everything we've ever done in our lives. But we ask one question about you, and nope, 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 this isn't about us. It's about you. And so there is that. I think it's total bullshit to call him out for saying that. knowing or whatever, not knowing that the guy had cancer at one point. We don't know anything about you guys. Let's keep it that way. Yeah, no, let's not. It's not fair. And so what I think is every time you ask me a question, I should be able to ask you a question. (laughs) Sure, why not? if you won't answer it, then I won't answer yours. Absolutely. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The NFL alone among major sports leagues in North America has no professional minor league or development system save from these small practice squads that allow each NFL team to carry up to 10 players. The real minor league for the NFL is big-time college football, which doesn't pay players anything beyond the fixed cost of a scholarship. But there could be an alternative to the NCAA soon for aspiring pro football players. The Pacific Pro Football League is planning to launch in the summer of 2018 with four teams in Southern California. The league will be open to high school grads who are not yet eligible to play in the NFL. 
meaning they are not at least three years beyond high school graduation. So that could include players who don't have the grades to go to college, ones who are at small schools and want to have more exposure, guys who are sitting the bench at big programs, or theoretically very well-known players who want to get a start at earning some cash rather than playing for no salary at LSU or Florida State or wherever else. Joining us now to discuss all this is Don Yee, who's an agent representing Tom Brady and Saints coach Sean Payton, among others, and is also the CEO of Pack Pro Football. Thanks for being with us, Don. Thank you for having me on. So what is your primary motivation for trying to get this new league, this new model off the ground? Well, the primary motivation is I was actually just to uh, give players a choice for the first time that they've never had before and, you know, create an alternative and really just try to expand the football industry by creating more jobs and uh, innovating. It's an industry that hasn't actually innovated in quite a long time, and it's been an idea that I've been thinking about for many, many years, and I finally got tired of myself uh, thinking about it and challenged myself to do something about it. How, how Don, do you feel that this endeavor could help players and what players could it help? I mean, my, my initial concern would be that you'd be selling a, a, a dream to a lot of athletes. Mm-hmm. 16 out of 1,000 college mm-hmm. players get drafted by the NFL. 8 out of 10,000 high school mm-hmm. players get drafted. What in this model makes you feel comfortable that you won't be selling kids a, a false hope of making the league? You know, there are three primary objectives. Uh, one is to help players who aspire to play professionally get better at their craft. And so one of the objectives is to train them and teach them in a style of professional football, which is very different than amateur football. Uh, The second objective is to actually try to do that by also making the game safer. We feel that um, we can do that by implementing certain rules modifications, uh, as well as probably the most critical element of shortening the season to only an eight-game season. And then finally, the third objective of the league is to hopefully help these young players explore a path outside of football by expanding our definition of education uh, beyond what is traditionally considered a four-year college education. And, you know, for example, we're going to have academic and vocational counselors on every team and try to spark their imagination as to what passions they might have outside of football so that we can start exploring those through innovation such as a really networked internship program or vocational training on top of that. Um, you know, and since we're going to play in the summer, the traditional academic calendar will be open to them without the uh, conflation of football. But to get to the other part of your question about the quote-unquote selling a dream when the chances of playing professional football are very remote. Um, well, first of all, we will be a professional league. We'll be offering a job. Uh, so they will automatically be professional. They'll be able to earn a living. They'll be able to start an IRA. They'll be eligible for workman's comp if they're hurt. So they'll immediately be into the workforce. And I, I have high hopes for this next generation. I, I, I'm actually very inspired by them. They're very open-minded, and you know, I believe they're very adaptable. And if we can start giving them an opportunity to professionalize earlier, I believe uh, 
they'll take to that. And it's just a choice. It's not for everybody, but it is a choice. And we, we believe that we're going to help by expanding the industry and creating jobs. So, Nate, you went to Menlo College Small School. You also played briefly in the United Football League. Uh, how does this sound to you? Would it have, uh, would it have appealed to you when you were in school? Uh, probably not when I was in school. My, my goal when I was in school was to make it to the NFL as all, as all, uh, college players have that goal. They want to make it to the league where the money is biggest, where the lights are the brightest, where the attention is, uh, the most interesting, but I do think it's, it's, it's a good prospect. And some of the things you were talking about, Don, were interesting to me. One of those is providing vocational training to, uh, to athletes. What I found in the NFL and when I left is that my peers in the NFL lacked the real-world language skills to deal with the real world after football. It's all football all the time, eight hours a day in the NFL, and I think that's a really good idea trying to get these guys' minds uh, thinking of something else. uh, If I could shift gears to the NFL, why can't we implement that system in the NFL? Why can't the union dig in their heels and fight for some more vocational training like you're talking about for these guys who are actually in the league? I think it can be done, but for whatever reason, it isn't done. I have my own theories, but I just decided to try to challenge myself to come up and innovate a different model. And I I think you make a really good point. In our league, in Pro, we're going to implement some of the things you're talking about because all of those things actually go into being a professional. And I've been working with players for nearly 30 years, representing them. And, you know, on my part of the side of the business, we actually take a lot of time talking to our guys about making sure their off-field matters are organized and that they understand why they're organized a certain way because that will help their performance on the field. And so at PacPro, we're going to implement some of the same philosophies I've used in my agency business. So the Wikipedia page for defunct professional uh, sports leagues has a lot of acronyms on here that people <laughs> might not have uh, might not remember, might not have heard of. There is the United Football League that uh, Nate uh, was on a roster briefly. Um, on outside the lines, I heard you mention a conversation you had with Bob Lee: thirty million dollars being a kind of marker for for what it would take to start this league up. Um, what's the revenue model and what, why should we think that this league will succeed where others have failed in the past? And if I could quickly add to that, why do we think that, or why do you believe, or how do you feel you will be able to attract fans if that's a goal at all? And if attracting fans is not a goal, that's fine. I mean, if the, the goals here are much larger than that, I think that's a fine approach, but it does it does come back to that revenue question. Okay, let's see. Those are three questions. Okay, the first one with the revenue model. The revenue model uh, will be patterned after traditional league revenue models at the beginning, and that means gate, concessions, merchandising, licensing, and, and usually the biggest slice of the pie is media rights. And one of the things we've discovered in doing our due diligence on this is that um, you know we now live in a world where there are many, many more content distributors uh, than ever uh, due to technology. Uh, On the flip side of the coin is that if you are a content distributor and you want to play in the quote-unquote big leagues and you want actual live sports programming, specifically football, 
which by every metric is America's number one passion sport, you actually don't have any access to football inventory because the, the two properties, the NCAA, the NFL, those properties are locked up under long-term uh, contracts. You, you know, when we were doing our due diligence on this, there was a pattern. All of the other leagues that weren't able to survive long-term, even though uh, a number of them should be given credit for innovating and having short-term success. But one of the reasons why they didn't survive uh, long-term, you know, and let's put, set aside the USFL because they did have success in proving capable of signing uh, college stars immediately out of college, signing top-level coaches, attracting fans to stadiums. They just didn't have, happen to have a content distributor. Um, but all the other leagues, the UFL uh, and a lot of these other leagues, they've generally used a player population that had already generally been deemed by the NFL as to be not good enough for the NFL. With us, we're going to actually go to the head of the line and try to attract the best emerging talent at the head of the line. And we feel by doing that, we hope to actually generate fan interest because the data shows that there is actually tremendous fan interest in emerging stars coming right out of high school. In fact, I think ESPN devotes an entire day on its platforms to National Signing Day um, every year. Um, there are many, many websites that have proven successful business models simply by following emerging talent and tracking where they go. But why wouldn't those kids just go to Alabama or USC or Michigan? Well, they could. We're just providing a choice. And actually, you know, we feel that there will be some kids who combine the two. We feel there might be some players who say to themselves, you know what, maybe I'll go play a major Division One for two years knock out some units, gain, gain some name recognition, and uh, get a little bigger and stronger, and then I'm going to play Pac-Pro in what would have been my junior year prior to declaring for the NFL draft and be trained as a professional, start earning a salary, and start marketing myself right away. Now that sounds like a plan. Nate, does that make sense to you? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's... As of now, there's one path to the NFL, and if there were uh, a couple other choices that guys could could use, I think that'd be really good, especially guys who might not excel in the traditional classroom setting. Do you see any pushback from the NCAA uh, for this plan? I don't know if there will be pushback, but you know, from a business standpoint, generally speaking, you know, I I believe the cab industry definitely pushed back against Uber, right? So right. I can try to take some lessons from the general <laughs> business world. You know, I, I think there might be some pushback, but I also feel that there are people within the NCAA system that will see us as a supplement because that's actually how I see it. I see us as creating jobs and I see us as a supplement to the industry because uh, their leaders have consistently come out and said that they really only want players who actually want to be students first. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, as you and I both know, Nate, there are some players that aren't with that philosophical approach. And so right. if those players actually had a choice, I think the NCAA actually might see us uh, as an entity that can work along with them. 
So Uber got three and a half billion dollars from a Saudi fund last year. That sounds like it might. That sounds like it could be cool. Um, three and a half billion. So I was in favor of Leonard Fournette skipping his junior year um, to avoid the risk of injury. It turned out he actually was injured pretty much the whole season, and just due to pride, I think, because he really loved his school and just wanted to play, he ended up just playing and never getting healthy all year. He ended up skipping the bowl game, as did Christian McCaffrey, son of Ed McCaffrey, who's uh, involved in your league. But my question would be for somebody like Fournette, okay, he sees this league out there. It would give him the opportunity to earn a salary, but also to sign marketing deals. If the idea of skipping, um, especially for a running back, is like, I don't want to get hit like 300 times, why would you want to play – in games, why wouldn't he just say, I'd like to develop myself, I'd go to one of these pro development places, I'd sign a big deal with Nike, and would just train for the draft. You know, why would somebody like Fournette want to expose himself to the risk of injury by playing in, in these development league games? That's a great question. Um, well, you know, as many football players know, I mean, you know, to get good at anything, you need repetitions. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do, and it's very difficult to simulate actual football repetitions at any training facility. Um, you know, even I've heard Bill Belichick say many times in interviews, you only get better at football by playing football. And so somebody like a Leonard Fournette might come to us and say, look, you know, I've never actually had to work on my blitz pickup techniques ever. Okay, because I've always been the guy who got the ball. But at the NFL level, he may actually have to be used in pass protection and, and work on those techniques. And to work on those techniques, sometimes there's nothing better than live game action. And so that might be one reason somebody like him might come. Yeah, I think that was one of the uh, the carrots for us um, in the UFL. So my UFL career lasted a couple of weeks uh, in training camp. I was uh, at the end of my NFL career. The Broncos had cut me. No other teams wanted me. And it, like you said, it was for those guys who the NFL had deemed not good enough anymore. And they told us originally uh, that it was going to be six figures. And then, no, nope, it was going to be 75. And then when we got there, they said, no, 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 it was going to be 50. And then when we actually got the paper in front of us, they said, nope, it's going to be $35,000 to play in this league. And uh, that so Saudi money didn't that, roll in, Nate. That was the problem. No, they had three and a half billion and just and Uber took it. Correct. And then the <laughs> following year was, the, I think, the second year of UFL. And halfway through the season, they ran out of money and asked the guys to keep playing. And, and they said, hey, we owe you. And a lot of the guys stopped playing. And I think that's how that league fell apart. And so uh, that is one thing that players uh, are very, very disappointed by is the amount of money that we were given. Sure, it was money. But for guys who are used to NFL money or hoping for NFL money, that just kind of didn't scratch the itch. So, Don, the question being, how could you make a promise given the history of these leagues sure. that the, sal- the the checks would clear, basically? Yeah, well, you know, uh, we've done a lot of uh, research into these other leagues, and, and um, uh, we know a lot of the people actually formed a lot of these other leagues, and, and I think many of them had uh, good intentions. And, in fact, the UFL... It was actually uh, well-financed by some very prominent people in 
Silicon Valley, you know, but in, in looking at that, if I could um, do some armchair quarterbacking on that, you know, we feel that in looking at what they tried to accomplish, the scope was actually too big. They actually tried to be a national league, which now introduces uh, incredibly expensive logistics. Uh, we actually felt that the UFL could have been successful if they, for example, said, let's start with just four teams in Northern California or in one particular state and cluster all of the teams, the training facilities, mm-hmm. and let's eliminate immediately travel costs, etc. And instead of trying to start with 12 or 16 teams, let's just start with four and prove the concept. And uh, that's what we're going to do. And we feel that we have a very solid plan for that. It seems like the, the, the approach here is to make this like a baseball minor league, generate local interest. I mean, let's be realistic. You're not going to be offering extremely high-level football, certainly nothing uh, that's going to compete with college, top college football, or with the NFL. So you have to offer people that come to watch something different, and that something different is we're training potential NFL players. We're upfront about that. This is a, a locally generated idea to, to sort of change the way the industry operates. Is an end game, is an, a potential end goal here to get the NFL interested in actually funding a genuine developmental league as opposed to something like NFL Europe? Um, where it's about expanding the marketing base, something in this case being just a pure developmental take athletes who don't necessarily meet the college model and try to get some of them ready to play in the NFL. You know, the NFL, I, and I, I can't really speak to what their plans are. They publicly stated on several occasions um, over the past six months about possibly needing a developmental league. But again, they're looking at player populations that have already exhausted their college eligibility, and that same population uh, may have already been um, cut from one team or may possibly two or three teams. And they're trying to give that particular population more opportunities to get better. We're looking at trying to professionalize um, the other end of the player population. And we feel that if we can offer these emerging players um, the kind of training that they would have generally received once they entered into the NFL, if we can offer that type of training and support earlier, we feel that the learning curve, if they happen to uh, um, have the opportunity to play in the NFL, we feel the learning curve will be actually much shorter. Don Yee is the CEO of Pack Pro Football. He's also an NFL agent. Don, thank you very much for uh, talking with us. Privileged to be on with you guys. Thank you. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Monday night in Oakland's Oracle Arena, the Golden State Warriors didn't really avenge anything because it's not the finals yet, but they did at least beat the crap out of the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Warriors won 126-91 with Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson all scoring 20-plus, and Draymond Green putting up a Draymond 
which is a triple-double plus a flagrant foul. Although it was not a full Draymond, which is a triple-double plus a flagrant foul involving the opponent's genitals. Joining us now to discuss, it's ESPN's Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, who's at the game on Monday. And I'm protecting myself in case he's getting ready to deliver the full Ethan. (laughs) Hello, Ethan. (laughs) Hi, guys. So let's caveat this appropriately because the Warriors are healthy now, at least that's my sense, and the Cavs were missing J.R. Smith, plus Kevin Love was having back problems. But the Warriors looked like what the Warriors can and should be offensively and defensively. They're 35-6, and which is a a very good record. They also blew a 24-point lead to Memphis a week ago, which was strange. You've been watching this team all year. So what is the key to them playing as well as they did against Cleveland? Well, to hear them tell it, a lot of it has to do with the approach that Steph Curry took. I think he shot seven seven shots in the first quarter, and um, he wasn't shooting with customary efficiency, but it still means a lot to that team when, when he takes the lead. He was uh, a lot more deferential early on. He was trying to incorporate Kevin Durant, and after the game, and I'm writing about this, so maybe I'm, I'm stealing for myself a little bit, it, it felt a little bit like... Uh, Back in the day, when um, during the Bush administration, when they had talking points memos, right, and they would repeat the same phrase, and and uh, Steve Kerr after the game said of uh, Steph, when he's aggressive, we go, and says that he loved that he took uh, twenty shots, and then Clay Thompson goes up there and he says the exact same thing. He says, <laughs> "I love that he took twenty shots when he's aggressive." We go. So I love I that he took twenty shots when he <laughs> is aggressive. We go. <laughs> In the, the slightly robotic autopilot tone of, uh, of one Clay Thompson, certainly. So uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think they've had a little bit of that weirdness that you mentioned. Um, a lot of it's been in crunch time and closing out games because uh, at the end of at the end of the game, um, it's really valuable when teams are trying to switch against that super death lineup that the Warriors run and the people who don't know that's Draymond at center, and then you have four three-point shooters uh, in addition to Draymond, and it's just really hard to guard, so teams switch against it, and you need the Steph Curry of old to just destroy guys on the switch, and if he's not doing that, there's a little bit of confusion at the end of these games. So uh, I think um, they just needed Steph over the season to be a little less deferential, a little less of a passer, and go for his, and I think they've benefited from that. How much of the evolution of the Warriors this year is related to how do you integrate Kevin Durant into your already Hall of Fame lineup? I mean, that made for for some great takes in the offseason and the earlier part of the season, but there's a reality here, and I think Nate can attest to this, that athletes do need to work with each other and understand each other and become more of a unit mentally, emotionally, physically. This is a, these sports are difficult to play and coordinate. Are we seeing a, a progression here of the Warriors just getting better? I think so, and that's something that certainly happens, and continuity um, is an advantage. It's not, it's not easy to chart that statistically, and it's easy to project onto the, uh, the accumulated talent that they're just going to know from day one how to do it. Um, the thing the Warriors need to get 
good at, I think, going forward, um, and I'm writing about this, uh, they need the Steph Curry, Kevin Durant pick and roll to work. That has not worked well. It was a play that was supposed to be unstoppable. Um, and I also think it's important just from the perspective of incorporating your two big stars. I think that that means something. You don't want this weirdness where at the end of games one guy is doing everything, the other guy is just standing over there in the corner. I think they need the uh, Curry-Durant pick and roll to work for, for multiple reasons. You know, According to my charting, I think they've run it about 55 times and gotten 54 points on it with uh, eight turnovers for people who aren't steeped in basketball nerddom. That's really bad. And a lot of that, um, from what I can tell, is because Durant doesn't really set screens. I mean, he often slips the screens to get into more basketball nerddom. It, it, it means that you just sort of run away um, instead of setting the screen. It looks like you're about to set it, and then you just sprint away, and you hope that the defense gets confused because they're about to uh, try to trade assignments when you set the screen, and suddenly you've run away from the exchange point, and you're wide open for three. Durant loves doing that, but he barely ever sets any sort of or, or creates any sort of contact. Um, on that pick, and I think it's because in Oklahoma City he wasn't expected to do that, um, and I think that that approach has uh, has hindered that action from actually working. So I think that's the thing they need to learn how to do, especially in crunch time, is the Steph, KD, PNR. So Draymond Green remains the most fascinating man in the NBA and in the Warriors locker room. You wrote a piece earlier this year about concerns in the franchise that he might, uh, you know, accidentally launch a nuclear weapon or s- something similarly destructive. Just in the game on Monday, he was so good. Just defensively, him and Durant together were just shutting down, you know, anything that the Cavs wanted to do inside the three-point line. He was unbelievable facilitating. Um, and... With that guy, they just look impossible to beat. So what is the kind of current state of the Draymond? What is the the current thinking of the franchise about, you know, how he's doing and how everyone's getting along around him? I don't know if I can speak to specifically how everybody's getting along around him. I know that Kerr early in the season said that he had matured quite a bit. But to me, he still seems like the same old Draymond, which is, uh, somebody uh, who is fantastic at basketball, probably underrated for all the attention that he gets. Um, and somebody, by the way, we were talking about screen setting. He's maybe the best screen setter in the sport. Um, and someone who's brilliant about the game. Um, he sees it so well. Uh, but the thing with Draymond, it, it, it's not ever that he's wrong. It's usually how he goes about being right. And you just have to wonder in one of these playoff series and maybe the finals if he has another moment because he definitely is in the crosshairs of the league. And it's just—it's such an odd thing to say about a player, but I feel like there's an immense risk that uh, whatever we're talking about regarding him, um, it's, it, it's going to be up to the league at some point, and they're going to suspend him. And it's going to be one of those incidents like last night where maybe he didn't do anything, but there's an intense confirmation bias and negative confirmation bias. Um, and maybe he was reckless, and maybe he should have handled it one way and he handled it the other way. Um, I think you saw evidence of that last night where I think that LeBron did flop in their collision, uh, but maybe Draymond shouldn't have played it up so much um, and been yapping at, uh, at Richard Jefferson, and maybe he should know uh, that, as he said, he's, he's targeted. That's what he said 
when he got a flagrant after accidentally, I think, kicking James Harden in the beard or the beard region uh, <laughs> around the beard. The greater metro beard area. The greater metro beard, you know, greater metro beard area, certainly. Um, and a- after the game, he was uh, sort of taking shots at, at how he's refed, and he tweeted out that he's targeted. Um, but then when I asked him uh, if he needs to adjust his behavior because he's, got a, he, he's targeted, uh, he essentially said no, and I'm just going to be me because I don't know who else to be. And uh, he also said about other guys, there's a lot of guys who come home exhausted from acting all day. I'm not going to be exhausted from acting all day. So there's this recognition um, that he has a thin margin for error when it comes to these things uh, and a recognition that the league might be out to get him. Uh, but the result of that understanding or even paranoia isn't to lay low, it's to be as Draymondy as ever, and I just don't know how that's going to go for them when the league, uh, in this culture we have where we just slow motion replay anything that happens and impute yeah. invidious motives to it, um, I just wonder if that's going to come back to bite them again. A world in which Draymond Green does not mimic LeBron James flopping is not a world I want to live in. That was hilarious. <clears throat> well, yeah, I think as far as, um, as, far as Draymond goes, you know, there's a risk in trying to get him to tamp down his personality and trying to get him to not uh, react the way he normally would because it might take him out of his game. You said he had a triple-double, one flagrant. I'll take the flagrant foul if you're going to give me a triple-double every night. Nate, I want to jump in and ask you if you had a player like that. Like, what is it like when a guy like that is just yelling at you all the time? Like, he doesn't seem to care. Like, he'll yell at Kevin Durant. And as Ethan said, it seems like he's right all the time is that what kind of separates it out from being annoying like is well, it okay what, if a guy yells at you as long as like he's a really great player and is right about whatever he's yelling at so there is a disconnect between the way we view these communications between teammates and the way they view it so these guys know uh uh, Draymond. They see him every day. They see the way he communicates, even the way he talks about bubble gum or tying his shoes or lunch. He's probably really passionate about those <laughs> things too. He's probably yelling about lunch. And so when he yells at you on the court about a play, you just take that as Draymond talking to you about something that he cares about or something that he wants to tell you. And so for guys like that, yeah, you let them say that what they want. You don't take it personally. You don't zoom in slow motion on their mouth and talk about what assholes they are. These guys communicate on a way that we don't understand. And so for us to pick apart that communication, I think, is missing the mark. That sounds like a football player's take. I don't think <laughs> NBA players necessarily love getting screamed at in front of the, uh, the whole arena fans. I, I play, I, I, I play and to be clear, Nate could be right because Kevin Durant, when he was asked about that specific interaction, um, said that he liked it and you know, he, was, he was hitting on some of those themes that Nate was hitting on right there. Um, but I think that the issue is you're adding embarrassment onto whatever happened, and guys will take it when it's somebody who has seniority over them. I think we all remember LeBron screaming at Mario Chalmers time and time again, uh, but when the other player is younger than you are or maybe not as great as you are, I think that's when it tends to, uh, that's when it tends to rankle. At least that's what happened last year, but there's been a lot of roster turnover. Half the roster is different. Who knows, maybe it's a roster that's more amenable to getting uh, spittle flying at your face because you indeed did screw up. So before the season started, everyone was saying and thinking that the season was all prelude to 
the third straight Warriors-Cavs finals rematch. And the Rockets have been great. The Spurs continue to be great. The Clippers look occasionally frisky. But it doesn't seem like anything has really changed the outlook for the season. And so do the Warriors, in your view, look at the year as kind of warm up for that series? And do they look at these games as like practicing what we're going to do in the finals or measuring, you know, how we're looking? There was so much kind of inane chatter about, is it a rivalry? As if like naming it, that has any kind of significance. But I guess I'm just asking, (laughs) I'm asking a variation, a slightly more erudite variation on that, uh, on that uh, theme is, uh, you know, how do the Warriors view this? And how are they, you know, treating the regular season? Well, first off, Frisky Clipper sounds like an interesting band name. I'm not sure which genre that we would fit that into. That's something to consider. Second off, I enjoyed how the aforementioned Draymond Green just admitted it was a rivalry and kind of mocked the idea that it's just him. It, it's just me. You know, he just said with dripping with sarcasm, uh, that's just me who, who views it that way, and he's just going to view it that way and really embrace the pro wrestling aspect of this. Now, the Warriors are never going to say that all that matters is the Cavs, and the Cavs are never going to say that about the Warriors. They have other teams to face and other uh, presumably hard-fought playoff series on the horizon, but I think they deep down know, and there is that expectation, uh, that they'll play against each other, and I do think that it's it's compromised the regular season to a certain extent. I mean, there were uh, rumors going into this one that the Cavs might sit all their guys. Uh, I know that it was at least discussed by the Warriors that you were coming off a, a hard road trip leading up to the Christmas Day game. I mean, the idea that that's even talked about for these big uh, nationally televised NBA uh, finals rematches shows you in a way, the state of the league, where we've almost gotten too self-aware. We, we know that it's BS, and I think a lot of the fault might lie with the Warriors um, and, to a certain extent, the Cavs, because the Warriors slaughtered the Cavs in Cleveland last season. They won 73 games, and in the they end... They got David Blatt fired. They got David Blatt fired. They got Israel enraged at the <laughs> Cleveland Cavaliers Association, and in the end, uh, it didn't really mean much because they lost and we all know that's what matters and that's what's going to echo across history is the internet makes fun of you for blowing a 3-1 lead they're not going to give you uh, an enormous amount of credit for your regular season accomplishments so i think that there's a bit of a, a an existential anxiety right now in the nba where we're not sure why we're doing this overlong 82 game season if it doesn't ultimately matter and as a lot of research has shown standings after 20 games pretty much look like the standings after 82. Yeah, the my favorite moment so far this year, and I only really saw the highlights, so I'm curious how this played for you, was when they got those 31 assists on 31 straight field goals against the Knicks, and it just seemed like they were just trying to, like in a video game, like you set yourself a challenge within the game, like a kind of incremental challenge just to keep yourself interested. Like they were basically fucking around within basketball to come up with something that they could do. And like, you know, Clay Thompson scores 60. That's another way that you can create a challenge within the game of basketball to entertain the fans and keep yourself entertained. I just, I don't know how many of those there are within the season. 
Yeah, I think the term that Haralabos, uh, Vulgaris, uh, the NBA gambler, calls that uh, is assist whoring. Uh, the Warriors were assist whoring throughout that game, and who could even blame them? I mean, these games in a vacuum don't don't matter a tremendous amount, and um, I, it's a reason why when players have a statistical fixation, and you can judge them for that. Perhaps I remember in the Draymond Green article there was the fixation on triple doubles. It's understandable. Just in that you need something so you're not bored. You need some other kind of goal uh, when the regular season doesn't mean that much. And I guess the NBA is in a bit of a bind because it's too much risk for them to uh, carve games off the schedule. I think that it's, the schedule is penny-wise, pound-foolish. I, I wholeheartedly believe that the NBA would be a more profitable enterprise if games happened on a regular schedule. If Americans all knew that games were on Tuesdays and Thursdays only with maybe a Sunday showcase, and there were far fewer of them, I think they would make it up uh, in TV money. But to do such a thing, you'd have to take a tremendous amount of risk with hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and it might not work. Maybe Americans watch just as much as they did before, and you're sacrificing all that money on these games. So I, I'm not sure it's ever going to be reformed. I don't think it's ever going to be reformed. Uh, but now more than ever, I think the average fan and the players who are resting more than ever are aware that it's a prelude. Ethan, uh, you told us already what your next couple articles are going to be, but we'll read them anyway because uh. we, we love you. Uh, Ethan Sherwood stress as a writer for ESPN.com. He follows the Warriors. Uh, thank you, as always, for coming on the show, my friend. Thanks for having me, guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. Nate, can you give us like a play? Like a, like a, a, name a play of a call? Play? Yeah, like a name of a play. Like what's one that uh, what's jumps to the front of your yeah. cerebral cortex right now? Well, I think the last time I did this with you guys, I did a different. Pl- I did a play, and it was a sprint ride option, which was uh, which was the one that uh, the catch was modeled after. It was a quintessential West Coast offense play where the inside slot receiver runs a, a quick out to the pylon, and the outside receiver runs this kind of looping uh, back pylon play, and that was Dwight Clark. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. But you know what? That's a boring name for a play. I want some some spiders and bananas and 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 colors. Well, there's, I mean, there's two jet all go, which means everybody go deep. Oh, that's I fun. like that. I, I like, like that. that. There should be more two jet all go in football. Yeah, exactly. Are I you... mean, that's my favorite play in football is go deep. Nate, what is your two jet all go? Man, these Thursday night games are really bad for us. We shouldn't be playing them. Oh, shut up. What do you have to complain about? You're lucky to be on that field. And the argument ends there because everyone agrees. You should feel lucky to be playing in the NFL. Lucky. Fuck that. There's no luck involved. It's backbreaking work that gets you to the NFL and nothing more. That you were able to endure the most physical punishment of anyone in your town while dishing out more than your fair share can hardly be considered luck. 
You are, in fact, the only ones involved here who are not lucky. I've been where you are. I didn't feel lucky then, and I don't feel lucky now. It was never about luck. It was about belief in the self, hard work, and straight up balling. Fucking balling, day in and day out. That's what being a professional is about. Not luck. The pressure you get to feel lucky is the complicit party's admission of guilt, a tactic to keep you quiet, and it works. I stayed quiet when I played. We all did. We sat and watched as the NFL was taken over by poachers and wingtips. We said, yes, sir, may I have another, when doctors injected us with dangerous medicine and put us back onto the field, headfirst all day. We kept quiet when the league publicly defamed and fined players for doing exactly what they're paid and coached to do. We stayed quiet when they put Thursday night games on TV despite scientific evidence that football causes brain damage. We stayed quiet when CBA after CBA ignored the soul of the man in favor of tiny slivers of a pie eaten by more and more strangers every year, all of them telling us that we were lucky. That pie you bake as players stretches across the world. And every season, American entrepreneurs find innovative new ways to make money off of you, your body, your name, your life. See fantasy football. Will you get a cut of it? Will you be involved? Will you own anything? No, you won't. But you should feel lucky. You should feel lucky for being trained on how to give a proper football-related soundbite and then to shut the fuck up. That's why you don't know how to speak up for yourself. You're intentionally deprived the means to develop your language skills. So feel lucky. Feel lucky that although you are a virtuoso, a complete master of your art, oftentimes you are stuck reading sheet music written by the Sunday school piano teacher, he who somehow controls your fate. And feel lucky that although you're an American adult and that you have proven yourselves to be the best in the world at what you do, you have no more power than when you were eight years old. You still take orders like a servant and pay reverence to the same feeble-bodied, fire-breathing football men who use you as chess pieces. Your brain damage is collateral. Communities have been built on your broad back. Be proud. Feel lucky. Feel lucky that your careers will be over in three years and that everyone will think you're a millionaire, even though you're not. Feel lucky that you'll free fall into a dark depression. Feel lucky that five years later, when you finally drag yourself out of the suicide swamp, your healthcare will expire and you'll be on your own with a laundry list of physical, neurological, psychological problems and no way to ask for help because they've already cut out your tongue. Feel lucky that the NFL settled a $1 billion concussion lawsuit so they wouldn't have to tell you what they know about CTE, about what the game does to your brain, about what you're actually risking. There's a concerted effort to keep you from the truth because you're making so many people so very rich. So get out there, buddy, and feel lucky to be there. I feel I just feel lucky that you're my friend, Nate. <clears throat> Thanks, man. Me too. You forgot uh, that you can feel lucky <laughs> to be asked to do podcasts. Feel lucky that you get asked to do podcasts. <laughs> uh, that was great. Thank you, Nate. Uh, Stefan, what is your two-jet all go? All right. I played in a Scrabble tournament over the weekend. Uh, this one, as Josh knows, in New Orleans. It was another suck job by me. 9-11 and 11 record, including multiple blown games to snatch defeat from the jaws of certain victory. 
sometimes seemingly impulsively. So there was nothing behaviorally new for me there. What was new that I willingly joined Nate Jackson and countless other athletes as a user of performance-enhancing drugs. Allow me to explain. When I was in my late 20s, I had my first heart arrhythmia. In the middle of the night, I woke up with my heart racing so fast, it felt like it was going to blow through my chest. 180 beats per minute, crazily erratic. It was my first episode of atrial fibrillation, in which the electrical current in your heart goes out of whack. In younger, healthy people, AFib is largely benign and easily correctable. But you can't walk around with your heart beating out of rhythm for too long. There's a risk of a blood clot forming. So I made the first of what would be 40 or so trips to the hospital over the next quarter century to have my heart restored to normal. My heart rate never skyrocketed like that first time, but once or twice a year, usually when I was fatigued or stressed or generally run down, my heart would go out of rhythm. Instead of the usual beat, 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 it would go beat, 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 beat. Beat. I could tell instantly. I would text my cardiologist and I would head to the cardiac catheterization lab the next morning for what's known as a cardioversion. 120 or so joules delivered through pads stuck to my chest and back, which jolted my heart back into sinus rhythm. And then I'd go home. Apart from the constant anxiety about going into AFib and no caffeine or alcohol, AFib was not a huge deal for me. Infrequent, manageable, tolerable. I took a beta blocker twice a day as a prophylactic. Beta blockers slow the heart rate, and the one side effect is a general loginess for me anyway, combated by forcing myself to work out a lot. So not a big deal, but still. Last year, my cardiologist said it was time to try to wipe out the AFib before I get old and it becomes an actual life-threatening problem. So in November, I had a cardiac ablation. A couple of catheters were snaked up the femoral artery in each of my legs and into my heart. The offending electrical impulses were identified and then frozen into oblivion. It seems to have worked. No AFib for two months. I don't feel as generally run down or freaked out about going out of rhythm. So I tapered off of the beta blocker under my cardiologist's uh, direction. All good, except for one thing. I didn't anticipate what would happen to me without the beta blocker when I was extremely stressed out. And there's <laughs> one place I almost assuredly get extremely stressed out at Scrabble tournaments. The first day of the New Orleans tourney on Saturday was a total disaster. I lost five of eight games, and how I felt definitely contributed to the nightmare. My heart stayed in rhythm, but it was racing constantly. My hands were shaking. Writing down the score and words played and keeping track of the tiles played was challenging. I knew instantly what was happening. I was experiencing beta blocker withdrawal. My body was rebelling to the absence of its familiar calming agent, and it was fucked up, man, and I was worried. So I did what any sensible athlete would do. On Sunday morning, I popped my old dose of 80 milligrams of sodalol, and it worked, as I knew it would. My heart rate steadied, no more shaking, no more physical freakout. I took another one on day three of the tournament, too. Beta blockers are common performance-enhancing drugs in sports like archery, biathlon, billiards, golf, and darts. Yes, darts. Anything that requires intense focus and a steady hand. So, Nate, am I a doper? I'll let you and others decide. WADA does ban beta blockers, but there's no drug testing in Scrabble, and I totally think I'd be granted a therapeutic use exemption because of my pre-existing condition. Unfortunately, the beta blocker did not stop me from missing the bingo in the letters A-A-C-E-I-N-N through an E. That would be E-N-C-A-E-N-I-A and Senia, an annual university ceremony of commemoration with recital of poems and essays and conferring of degrees. 
or twice failing to block the only spot that would let my opponent win, or dumbassedly challenging a new five-letter word, piezo, P-I-E-Z-O. Alas, there is no drug that can prevent me from fucking up endgames in Scrabble. But if there were, I definitely would take it. <laughs> so is he a doper, Nate? Not unless he gets caught, man. It's not a crime if you don't get caught. Good thing nobody <laughs> listens to this podcast. <laughs> Josh, what's your two-jet all-go? So I am also going to tell the deeply personal story of the 1967 NFL playoffs. Uh, Before no, you were born? No, I feel bad because those were both great uh, stories about yourselves. And I'm just going to talk about the Baltimore Colts. Um, <laughs> so the Packers and Cowboys just played for the eighth time. In uh, the postseason, that series is now tied 4-4. to The Packers won the first two, and the last two, they lost the four in between. Those first two games took place after the 66 and 67 seasons, with Green Bay beating Dallas both times in the NFL title game on the way to winning Super Bowls 1 and 2. In 1967, the Packers beat the L.A. Rams before taking down Dallas in the Ice Bowl, the famous Ice Bowl game. The Rams actually were tied for the best record in the league that year at 11-1-2, while the Cowboys and the Packers were just 9-5 and and 9-4-1, respectively. The other team that finished 11-1-2, yes, there were two teams that ended the year with 11 wins, one loss, and two ties, were the Baltimore Colts. And they did not make the playoffs, which is very weird. This is kind of following up on your what would be the best record to not make the playoffs after ball. I learned about this when a reader named Gord Fitzgerald emailed me after the article I wrote a couple of weeks ago in which I explained that under current NFL rules, it's possible for a 14-2 and team to miss the playoffs. I didn't know at that point that a team with just one loss had actually missed the playoffs in real NFL history. So in 1967, there were two conferences in the NFL, the Eastern and Western, and the Eastern had the capital – and century divisions, while the West had the coastal and central divisions. Four teams made the playoffs, the four division winners, no wild cards or anything else. No team in the NFL other than the Rams and Colts, both in the same division, had more than nine wins. So if you look at point differential, the Rams were plus 202, the Colts were plus 196, and then the other... Uh, division winners were plus 123, plus 74, and plus 37. These were the best teams in the NFL. They played twice. They tied their first game, and they played again in the last game of the season. So the Colts were actually undefeated going into the last game of the season, 11-0-2, and missed the playoffs. It was Johnny Unitas versus the Rams' fearsome foursome. Unitas got fearsomed and foursomed. He got sacked uh, seven times. They lost 34 to 10, which left the two teams tied at 11, 1 and 2. The Rams advanced on the tiebreaker, which at that point was point differential and head to head game. So they were plus 24. Unitas complained a little bit afterwards, saying it was unfair that his team had missed out and saying that the Rams and Colts should have played a divisional tiebreaker game like they did in baseball. That's actually how they broke ties in the NFL for the playoffs prior to 1967 when they went into divisions. The Colts had played a tiebreaker game against the Packers mm. in 1965. The teams had been 10-3-1 and one go at, the, at the end of the regular season. A lot of tying. The Packers uh, won that game in overtime. Don Chandler, 27-yard field goal. Always the kicker. 
they won 13 to 10. <laughs> um, but this is the the best uh, kicker. Uh, Speaking of kickers. The website Past Interference, which is a good name for a football history blog, says many consider the 1968 Baltimore Colts to be the greatest team never to win a Super Bowl. The Colts went 13 and one that year, were dominant all the way up to Super Bowl three, where they, along with the rest of the world, were shocked by the New York Jets. So in 1967 and 1968, the Colts lost a combined two regular season games. Did not win a Super Bowl and only made the playoffs once. I feel bad for the Colts. They're not even in Baltimore anymore. That's the saddest Sad. part. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. Find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating. It really helps us with our iTunes rankings. Do it. Become a fan on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Thanks to the great Nate Jackson for filling in today. You're the best, Nate. We had two. You guys are the best. Thanks. Uh, Oh, God. That was so moving. (laughs) We had two producers today, Afim Shapiro and Mickey Capper. When Nate Jackson to two producers are replying. Thanks to both of them. (laughs) Our intern is Adam Willis. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.